You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. If you follow internet rumors, well, mark your calendar. November 19th is the date when the putative planet Nibiru will crash into Earth, causing general mayhem, not to mention obliteration of the planet. Never mind that this is the second revised date for a cataclysmic Nibiru encounter this year, or that this object has never been observed by astronomers. The story is still making the rounds. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and we devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. In this episode, stories of a wayward world named Nibiru are hooey, but NASA still felt compelled to issue a statement of public reassurance. What prompted the agency to speak out, and why the astronomer who reclassified Pluto as a dwarf planet believes that some kind of Planet X really is out there? Meanwhile, human fallibility in falling for fabulous fiction has a long history. Remember when newspapers reported that carnivorous beasts had escaped from Central Park Zoo? Well, we'll refresh your memory. It's Skeptic Check, Nibiru, again. It's the mother of all rain checks. The proposed date for the end of the world as brought to us by the planet Nibiru has been postponed so many times, you might find yourself wondering if the world will ever end and if the warnings from self-appointed soothsayers that flood the internet are reliable. This month offers another encore non-performance by the fabled world Nibiru. This is one planet with star power. The claim that Nibiru, in orbit around the sun somewhere beyond Pluto, is on a trajectory for Earth has been causing alarm on and off since AOL first offered access to the World Wide Web. It seems to have appeared in 1995 on the personal website of a woman who claimed that messages from extraterrestrials were being delivered directly into her brain. She prophesied that a large object would sweep through the inner solar system in 2003 and destroy Earth. That date was then postponed. Nibiru's malevolent disruptions were most dramatically linked to the 2012 doomsday predictions. It's 2017 now, and Nibiru is still circulating on the web, if not in the outer solar system. The date for its disastrous encounter with Earth has been revised twice this year, from September 23rd to October 21st, and it is now marked, presumably in pencil, not pen, for Sunday, November 19th. Still, 
that date is just around the corner, so just in case we should be tidying up our affairs, we asked a NASA astronomer what the heck is going on. You're asking me for a logical explanation of a totally illogical idea. There is no such planet, there never has been, presumably there never will be, but it keeps popping up over and over. You could forgive space scientist Dave Morrison's exasperation when he hears, yet again, the claim that a planet named Nibiru is going to hit Earth. NASA directs thousands of calls and emails from curious or panicked members of the public, including children, to him. He tries to answer them all. Got a phone call the other day, somebody, they'd heard of me, and so they just wanted to know what was really going to happen. The man asked, uh, this was a prediction that the world would end on a Saturday, and he said, well, should I go to work on Saturday or stay home with my family? He's reassured the public so many times, well, he could be excused for feeling that he's shouting down a well. And taking time to address rumors means spending less time on actual space science. But this year, NASA itself reinforced Dr. Morrison's assurances by issuing a rare public statement that there is no Nibiru and therefore there will be no collision. Dr. Morrison explains the dilemma the agency faces when deciding to comment on an apocalyptic fable. There is no observational evidence whatever. Astronomers, you know, are, are keeping track of what happens in the universe, what happens in the sky very well, and astronomers never report this. Besides, if a big object were coming into the solar system, its gravitation would perturb the orbits of the planets, and we would have detected that long before it came close to the Earth. Presumably, if this Nibiru really did exist and was on in this elliptical orbit that brings it to the inner solar system where it might interfere with the Earth. I mean, that would have happened over and over and over and over again. I mean, a million times, actually, in the history of the solar system, and we would see some consequences of that, right? We sure would. The planetary orbits are very regular, and if there was some massive object that every so often came through the inner solar system, you know, it, it would be all screwed up. The planets would not be coplanar. The moon would probably have been ejected from the Earth. Obviously, this has not happened. So what sort of effects would you expect? I mean, if Nibiru did exist, suppose it came to the inner solar system. It's more massive than the Earth. Would it really cause trouble? If it came into the inner solar system, it would disturb the planet's orbits. What would be the resulting configuration? No one knows. After all, it doesn't exist, so we don't know its mass. We don't know its orbit. It's just a really crazy idea. I think a lot of people don't understand the way scientists think or try to think, where you have a hypothesis, you look for evidence one way or another, you let the evidence lead you to an answer, it is or it isn't, or it's something else. Somehow that way of logical thinking that is familiar to scientists does not appeal to everybody. But of course, NASA does keep track of uh, asteroids that might conceivably hit the Earth and if they say, you know, there, there might be an asteroid passing within 100,000 miles of Earth and so forth, I mean, the public should believe that. What's the difference? The difference is that they are real and they are observations. NASA has now discovered about 20,000 near-Earth asteroids, all of which come moderately close to the Earth. And sometimes they will come very close. And NASA will put out these predictions. It's open. It's on the Internet. Anybody can look it up. And it's very easy then, on a slow news day, for someone to say, ah, it's going to come within a quarter of a million miles of Earth. That is close, and we should warn people that we're about to have this very close pass near-miss by an asteroid. 
you know, it's just, uh, it's true, it's going to come by. There's absolutely no chance of it hitting. A quarter million miles, I think that's uh, more or less the distance to the moon. And I guess if the rock is the size of a football field, you don't care, right? You certainly don't worry about it. That's true even if it comes much closer. We have had a couple of small asteroids that have come within 10 or 20,000 miles of the Earth. And that's close by astronomical standards. But they still miss. As long as they miss, it is not a danger. And astronomers can tell you in advance whether they're going to hit or whether they're going to slide by innocently at a few thousand or even a few million miles. And that size of asteroid, even at that distance, is not going to provoke tsunamis that are going to you know, ruin your beach vacation. Quite right. Asteroids are small. The asteroids that come close to the Earth could do a lot of damage if they hit the planet. But going by nearby, their gravity is so small, it has no effect on us. Okay, here's the big question. Such theories, such uh, dismal doomsday theories, aren't new. And clearly, if NASA had to respond to all of these or chose to respond to all of these, the, the agency would have rather little time to do its real work. And yet, the agency seems to have taken the time to issue a public denial about the, the at least first of the three recent predictions of Nibiru destruction. Do you have any idea why NASA would do this? That is a very difficult decision to have to make. When the Nibiru end-of-the-world thing was really abroad in 2012, NASA did respond, and I personally responded. I answered thousands of emails, and as we came close to the supposed date of the end of the world, they were coming in every hour or so, often from children who said, I, I can't sleep, I can't do my homework, I don't know what's going to happen, the world's going to end, why is the world going to end? And I was faced with trying to answer such questions. Now it's not that bad. But still, there is an issue. If a lot of people think something crazy is going to happen, and it has to do with planets, it has to do with astronomy, then some people in NASA would say we should respond, and others would say, no, that just adds legitimacy to an obviously crazy idea. Uh, they refer the public to some of the YouTube videos I did several years ago for the 2012 event. But it is just a constant frustration. You want to answer the public, you want to reassure the public, but you don't want to make the situation worse. So you don't get consistent response. Sometimes the people who say we ought to, to respond so that uh, the public isn't worried about this will prevail. And more often, what will prevail was, oh my God, another crazy idea. NASA shouldn't even get into it. Now, do you know where the buck stops on this decision? I mean, uh, is this a decision made at the administrator level, or is it, you know, uh, I don't know, a center director? Who, who actually makes the decision whether to say anything? NASA headquarters in Washington has a very good public affairs office, and they end up having to, to make this decision. Again, if we go back to 2012, when there was much more prevalent concern, yes, that actually went all the way to the administrator at some point to make sure that uh, what NASA was saying was legitimate and useful and not going to reflect poorly on the agency. What about the fact that there seems to be a segment of the population that believes that NASA covers up interesting stories, you know, the, the discovery of life on Mars or advanced civilizations or even advanced hardware on the surface of Mars. And there's no, there's no truth to this, but they seem to have the feeling that this agency, which does work that so many people find absolutely fascinating, would 
be covering stuff up. Well, clearly, you and I know that they wouldn't be. That's a scientific agency. There would be absolutely no value in passing out this sort of nonsense. But the public is very aware of NASA. Polls have shown that some people in the public, quite a few, think that NASA is a big agency, that it spends as much money as the Defense Department and so on. And so it attracts this kind of nonsense as well as legitimate interest and excitement in our exploration of the universe. I ask myself, do the people who uh, postulate these ideas actually believe them themselves? Obviously, some of them do. I'm pretty sure some of them don't. I know back in 2012 with the Nibiru scares, there were people that tried very hard to, to use this to make money. It was associated with a Mayan prophecy. And so they would arrange very high-end tours down to the uh, Mayan areas in Mexico. Uh, there were others that uh, bought land in Spain and claimed that this was the one part of the earth that was not going to be affected. And so they sold lots there at very high prices. They're always... Uh, snake oil salesman who will step in when an opportunity like this presents itself. Dave Morrison, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Dave Morrison is an astronomer and space scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center. Wasn't there a movie about worlds colliding when worlds collide? Yeah, well, that was the movie, though. That was the movie about worlds colliding. When Worlds Collide, 1951, George Pal directing, who, by the way, also directed uh, The War of the Worlds, the original version. But if I remember the movie, and it's a science fiction movie, we should be clear, it wasn't a documentary, was not about two worlds, planets colliding. One was a planet and one was a star. Well, it was actually about solar systems colliding, right? It turns out that another star called Bellus was going to <laughs> enter our solar system. But what happened first, before it hit us, was that Bellus had a single planet called Zyra. And Zyra flies close to the Earth, just like Nibiru is supposed to do. And it, you know, provokes earthquakes and tsunamis and all the usual havoc and destruction that a close-passing planet will, will occasion. Okay, so it makes for a great science fiction plot. But could two planets ever collide? And could two solar systems ever collide? Or a star and a, and a planet, do they ever collide? Are there collisions of these large bodies? Yeah, you, you know, there probably were lots and lots of collisions of planets uh, in the early days of our own solar system. I mean, the moon is thought to be the result of a collision that we underwent, you know, close to four billion years ago, right? Now, not many people wrote it down because they hadn't invented writing four billion years ago, but still. Now, the thing is that what happens is that when a solar system is formed, you've got these planets moving all around and protoplanets moving around. I mean, there's just a big shooting gallery of rocks. Some of them are big. And things will collide or at least pass close to one another. And when that happens, you know, it's not like when a car passes close to you, no damage done. But when two planets get close to one another, yes, indeed, you might get earthquakes and volcanism and all that stuff. Or what really happens is that one of the planets gets sped up and the other one gets slowed down. And the one that gets sped up might be kicked out of this solar system altogether. So, you know, after this all settles down, after, I don't know, a couple of hundred million years or whatever it takes, you're left with planets that have learned to play nicely with one another. And that's the solar system we have now. They don't, they don't hit one another. So cataclysmic collisions between solar bodies are real, even if Nibiru, the doomsday planet, is not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, it could happen. But the large bodies of the solar system, the planets, are not hitting one another. Well, if the Nibiru story tells us anything, it's that it's not easy to coordinate schedules. 
Okay, quiet everyone. Thank you for attending the end of the world breakout session. As was outlined, quiet please. As was outlined in the plenary session on personal prognostication, a doom of one's own, we're here to pick a date for the apocalypse. Uh, are we covering alien invasion here? Nope. Proposed dates of the extraterrestrial annihilation are next door in room 7B. This session is only for Nibiru and other rogue planets. Please, let's get started. As a reminder, precision is key in planning dystopic end times. Followers of prophecy want to know how much time they have left to get their affairs in order, so the end times should begin promptly. However, doomsday predictions can be a letdown. Remember how 2012 came and went without any of the hellfire predicted by the Mayan calendar? Now, why the prediction inscribed in clay a thousand years ago by corn growers in Mesoamerica wasn't accurate, we'll never know. At any rate, things never go according to plan. And that's why I invited Carly. Hi, everyone. Carly's specialty is contingencies. She's a wedding planner. Planning a wedding means hope for the best, but prepare for disaster. We like to say in Doomsday, abandon hope, prepare for disaster, but also prepare for a disaster, disaster. Good idea. Remember that radio preacher? Yes, he named like a dozen dates for the final apocalypse. Well, luckily, millions of dollars in donations to let him keep working out the kinks in his numbers. The point was he had a contingency plan. When the predicted date passed without fire and brimstone, he went to plan B. And eventually C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, and L. He was flexible, folks. Let's talk dates. Now, you should each have a calendar in your conference tote bag. In it, you'll also find a fidget spinner, a DVD of Nostradamus's biggest hits, it's short, and a baseball cap reading, I was there for the end. Now, the date for a Nibiru collision is November 19th, and if we're lucky, that will go as planned. But as I learned, whenever a wedding gown catches fire or the doves arrive in a sealed box, we need a backup plan. How does December look? Yeah, not good for me. Marjorie's whole family will be here for the holidays. Got to be flexible here, folks. Our ski vacation was booked like ages ago. One might want to give precedence to the end of the world. Put down a huge deposit on the chalet. I was really hoping to get that back, so... No problem. Let's look to the new year. How does March 17th look? That's St. Patrick's Day. Kind of sends a weird message. Okay, let's go earlier. March 8th. International Women's Day. Politically, the optics would be disaster. And not in a good way. You guys are tough. The 12th? It's Commonwealth Day. I'm Canadian? Well, I have a root canal on February 24th. Can we do it before then? How about on the 21st? Great, I'll just pencil that. Can we do it in the afternoon? Sure. All agreed? Yeah. 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 All righty then. The alternate date for the Nibiru apocalypse is the afternoon of February 21st. But if all goes as planned on November 19th, we won't need it. Thanks, Carly. It was my pleasure. Okay, I need to dash. My bride spilled cocktail sauce on her dress. What a complete disaster. Long before the internet, the printing press did a pretty nifty job of generating public panic. Find out just how many animals escaped from Central Park Zoo on a November day 140 years ago. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic check, the Bureau, again.
This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. During the late hours of a November evening in 1874, deep inside a gaslit ornate building owned by the New York Herald, workers were putting their newspaper to bed. Metal type was being manually set, copy editors scurrying around, and in a room below the sidewalk, two steam engines kept the printing presses running until the Sunday morning edition of the paper could be bundled and handed off to delivery men. And they had a particularly compelling story for this issue. When Gordon Bennett inherited the Herald from his father, the paper had the highest circulation of any American newspaper. The junior Mr. Bennett loved a good story, but felt that the paper should do more than report the news, it should also create it. Gordon Bennett was the one who commissioned Henry Morgan Stanley to find the missionary David Livingstone, supposedly lost in the African wilderness. Many months later, in the summer of 1872, the line, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, made for a thrilling read. Never mind that the missionary knew exactly where he was, the journalistic stunt sold papers. Two years later, when New Yorkers saw their copies of the Herald on Sunday the 9th of November, 1874, well, you might imagine the audible gasps resonating through the city. There had been an incident the day before the paper reported, and New Yorkers were in danger. The headline, a shocking Sabbath carnival of death. There had been a disaster at the Central Park Zoo, and animals were roaming the city. Savage brutes at large, read another headline. Awful combats between the beasts and citizens. There were National Guardsmen combing the city. The streets were littered with dead bodies. Governor Dix shoots the Bengal tiger in the street. Bravery and panic, the killed and wounded. Reportedly, 49 people were dead, over 200 people injured. This was frightening, and it genuinely scared a lot of people. After reading the Herald's account of events, some New Yorkers took matters into their own hands. A number of people reportedly grabbed guns and went out to protect themselves and to look for those wild animals that were out there. Sensationally scandalous stories, the peddling of unverified reports, were not spawned by the arrival of the Internet. 
Today's fake news is yesteryear's yellow journalism, says Robert Bartholomew, a sociologist, and it sells papers. One successful approach is to cook up a wild story around a plausible premise, which brings us back to those carnivores roaming the Big Apple. There had been grave concerns at this time that the zoo was not up to standards and that the cages were flimsy and that it was being run too laxed. And as a result, the animals got out and it was a very believable story. There had been stories before talking about how the cages were just not up to standard. Wasn't there also uh, quite a bit of detail given about what was happening to the victims, including their names? There were specific names, specific people, real people, and it was gory. I mean, this was in great detail, and it really reaffirmed that these things were really happening. And they were happening at the time that they actually saw the Herald, that the situation was not under control, that the animals were roaming the streets of New York City, and people needed to be on their guard. This story had a panther crouching over a man and gnawing at his body, and there was another body drenched in blood and stuff like that. I mean, this was kind of lurid for a paper. It was very lurid, and it was a story that captured people's imaginations. It looked real. Here's the thing. I mean, if people were to read to the end of the story, I'm sure there was a jump. This story was a long one. Uh, They found it had a kind of shocking ending. What was that? Well, the ending was that the story was a hoax perpetrated by the assistant editor of the Herald, which was intended to raise awareness about the flimsy cages and general state of disrepair at the zoo. The editor said that the story could be real in the future unless more money was spent to upgrade the zoo and that the zoo was really in a really dilapidated state. And many people failed to finish reading the article and went off with their gun in hand, thinking it was real. And in their defense, you know, you had to have some stamina to read the article because it was 10,000 words long. Well, okay. So, uh, you know, what do you think Bennett was really trying to do? Did he care about the maintenance uh, levels at the local zoo, or did he just want to sell newspapers? You know, I think it's a combination of both. And he could also claim that this was for a just cause, but it also resulted in a spike in the readership. And of course, the other papers in New York City were furious and really slammed the paper. But the damage had been done in terms of the number of copies sold, and it worked out well for the Herald. Robert, you've written about the history of media-created scares. You list dozens so over the past several centuries. Uh, by the way, how did they spread before newspapers? I kind of wonder, was it all just word of mouth? It was more like a slow-motion train wreck back then. If you look at hoaxes, the ones that really take off tend to have a degree of plausibility. They tend to play on people's fears. And every once in a while, a newspaper article that is a hoax would slip through. You're a sociologist, Robert. Maybe you could Tell me the difference between mass hysteria and social delusion. Is there a substantive difference there? Well, 
Yes, and these can overlay. Sometimes you can have a mass hysteria event occur with a social delusion. Mass hysteria is conversion disorder. It is the converting of emotions into actual symptoms that people get. It is feeling unwell. It is mass sickness, mass psychogenic illness. Whereas a social delusion is the mass fooling of a large group of people or a large number of people are deceived by something that's not real. So one has to do with illness and physical symptoms. The other has to do with uh, social delusion, a large number of people believing something that's not real. And mass psychogenic illness usually lasts for a very short period of time. Social delusions can last for decades. Let's talk briefly about one more media-driven hoax, because, well, to begin with, this one remarkably also occurred in 1874. Uh, it was minor, but still interesting. We think of global warming as a modern news story, but in the 19th century, the Kansas City Times sort of kicked it off with what might be the first. What was the story that this newspaper printed? Well, the Times printed the warning that the Earth was in danger of getting too close to the sun. It was based on a letter. The letter was sent to the paper by a man who claimed to have received it from an American scientist in Italy who claimed to have heard it from a group of scientists there that a well-known Italian astronomer named Giovanni Donati, a great Italian name, had discovered that the Earth's orbit was moving toward the sun at an alarming rate. Now, here's the gist of the story. Donati had supposedly invented a device that could measure the distance between the Earth and the sun. When the transatlantic telegraph cable was completed in 1858, Donati said that he noticed a gradual shift in the orbit of the Earth in that year corresponding with the telegraph cable, and it soon began to speed up. Then with the laying of another cable several years later, he supposedly noticed an even more dramatic shift. He said that he concluded the cables were acting like giant electromagnets pulling the Earth toward the sun, and that within a few decades, the Earth would be wiped out in terms of the human race because it would just be too hot. The interesting thing about this hoax is the story appeared in many papers in America and around the world, but there's very little evidence that it was ever really taken seriously. Most papers seem to bury the story in the middle or back pages, and many editors would make skeptical or humorous comments about it. There was one account reprinted in a Phoenix newspaper. The editor remarked that if the Earth was going to be pulled into the sun, it probably would be pretty discouraging news to insurance companies. So you could see that the hoax of the global warming in 1874 really didn't gain much traction. And the interesting thing here is people back in 1874, most people were skeptical of this type of dramatic story. It was the era of fake news. Although they didn't refer to it as fake news, it was called yellow journalism. People would have read the global warming story with a skeptical eye, especially given that if you look at it closely, it was a folk tale. Okay. Well, 
All right. Uh, apparently, this did not create panic, although there have been several science fiction films that uh, later picked up this idea that the Earth's falling into the sun. It doesn't sound like many people believed it, but was that simply the fact that the people were distrustful of the media at that time? I mean, that has a certain resonance with today. If the newspapers are going to you know, alternate news stories with fictional stories, maybe they just got a little bit skeptical. That's right. When I say it's a folk tale, folk stands for friend of a friend story. You know, I, I heard it from my mother's best friend's cousin who heard it from their uncle's housemate. And during the latter 19th century, reporters commonly tried to outdo one another with their own fake stories. And there were some real whoppers. Readers of 1874 were used to fake stories. They expected fake stories. During this time, the passing on of fake news had become something of a national pastime. I've done some research in this area, and it's interesting. There were even a series of local liars clubs dotted across the country that popped up during this time. It was something of a cat and mouse game with journalists trying to slip in a dodgy story here or there and to see if the people could detect the story. Well, finally, Robert, the ability to generate and spread stories about anything from exaggerated facts to falsehoods to to hoaxes, it's certainly easier now with the Internet and with digital media in general. And we've been talking in this episode mainly of rumors that haven't been damaging in the end, but not all are so uh, uh, innocent. What will it take for us as voracious consumers of media to be more discerning and to be more vigilant when it comes to fabricated stories? I think it's the E word, education. For me, good history is powerful because it speaks to the present day. The hoaxes of 1874 offer us lessons for today, whether it's 1874 or now. Successful hoaxes often have this air of plausibility and a grain of truth, and they often reflect hopes and fears. And as you move closer to the present day, I think there's an important lesson here. I think we've grown more vulnerable to hoaxes, and they have the potential to become longer lasting and more impactful with this rise of fake news. And the big danger we face today, I think, nothing could be further from the truth to think that we are somehow more sophisticated in 2017 than the people of 1874. And it comes down to education. It comes down to awareness. We've got the world of Photoshop. We've got the world of false Facebook postings, as the Russian government tried to do. And it's a minefield out there. And it's it's always good to get your news from a variety of sources. Robert Bartholomew, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Robert Bartholomew is a medical sociologist at Botany College in New Zealand, and he's the author of A Colorful History of Popular Delusions. And by the way, the name of the publisher of The Herald, Gordon Bennett, we were surprised to learn, became a figure of speech in the UK, Emma Bentley told us. Yes, it's kind of old school, but in the UK we say Gordon Bennett as an expression of incredulity, as in, Gordon Bennett, how'd you do that?
we're hearing about 19th century stories of yellow journalism in order to put into context uh, such reports as we've been hearing about this rogue planet, Nibiru. And the thing is that these stories can be believed if they seem somewhat plausible and if the source is not obviously phony. But even if the source does seem somewhat doubtful, there's another reason that people will continue to believe stuff that really is just rumor. Well, that's right. In other episodes of Big Picture Science, we've looked at what factors play a role in people believing in and perpetuating sensational, unverified stories, whether they're scientific or political. The director of the University of Wisconsin Center for Journalism Ethics, Katie Culver, reminded us then that sometimes even evidence that disproves a rumor cannot shake the firm grip of individual belief. In academic circles, we talk about something called motivated reasoning, which is no matter how much we have been schooled, and in fact, the effect increases with how much we've been schooled, our personal beliefs affect how we perceive evidence. So we'll counter-argue evidence based on our beliefs, if it conflicts with our beliefs. And the more educated we are, the more we will counter-argue, because here in schools, we teach people how to argue quite effectively. So we'll find people who believe in a whole host of, of misinformation, some which is put out there specifically to pollute our public sphere, and they fall victim because they're motivated to believe what they believe. Skeptics and journalists have, in some ways, similar goals, gather the evidence, test the assertions, draw conclusions that get as close to the truth as is possible. So what does it mean to be a good media skeptic these days? I think I think media skepticism is very, very important skill in being a citizen today. Uh, and I think maybe we don't talk enough about what citizenship means, but I do believe media literacy, the movement toward helping kids in schools, helping college students, helping people who have uh, who are in the workforce understand this sometimes polluted information environment we have and how to deal with it, how to find sources, things like PolitiFact, things like Snopes.com, conversations with others, how to find our way to verify information. And I think it's also really important that everybody understand that truth isn't accuracy alone. There are lots of times that I can peddle out one or two facts and marshal them toward a conclusion that isn't actually just. Truth comes from accurate statements put in the correct context. And if I have one main criticism of where we are in today's media environment, it's that we've lost that sense of context. We've drilled down to such small messages in such an amazing lightning speed of time that we've lost the ability to understand them in their true rich context. And that can lead us to a lot of faulty conclusions. Katie Culver is the director of the University of Wisconsin Center for Journalism Ethics. That's an excerpt of our conversation with her from 2013. If we are resigned to believe what we believe, it's hard to separate the facts from the phony. For example, what if I said that there may be a mysterious planet X in the outer solar system that hasn't been observed, but this mysterious unobserved planet is not Nibiru? Well, how do you weigh one claim against the other? It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. Skeptic check, Nibiru, again.
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In all the hoopla over Nibiru, we found someone credible who thinks there really is a mysterious planet in the outer solar system, and few people know the outer solar system like he does. I am Mike Brown. I'm an astronomer at Caltech. Mike Brown's name may ring a bell as the scientist who gave Pluto a new designation as dwarf planet. He says it is possible that a planet X, also called Planet 9, exists in the outer solar system, but he distinguishes between it and the hypothesized planet Nibiru. I'm going to object to your use of the term hypothesized planet. I would say that this is not a hypothesis. This is a fairy tale planet that was kind of made up. There's no scientific hypothesis. There's just this kind of strange conspiracy theory. Because an hypothesized planet would mean that there's evidence, even circumstantial evidence, that would provide a reason to believe that a planet is out there. For example, in the early 19th century, some young mathematicians said that irregularities in the orbit of the planet Uranus could be explained by the gravitational tugs of another unseen planet, and that led directly to the discovery of Neptune. But the astronomers didn't just make up this world, they had observational evidence on which to base their hypotheses about Neptune. And the same is true for Mike Brown's Planet Nine. Circumstantial evidence suggests that it exists. There are objects, small rocks, in the outer solar system that have orbits that are not random, as you'd expect. Their orbits seem to be organized. So the question is, what is doing the organizing, and could it be that a really big planet is tugging on them with its gravity? This is something that's 5,000 times more massive than Pluto. This thing is nearly the size of Neptune. There's going to be no question that when this thing is found, that it will be immediately declared to be the ninth planet in the solar system. He and his team are looking for that ninth planet, but not for the wayward world Nibiru. The interesting thing is that it's easy to conflate actual scientific hypotheses that we have with this crazy idea that there's a planet on a very eccentric orbit coming into the inner solar system because there's a planet on a very eccentric orbit that we haven't found yet that's massive, but it's not coming into the inner solar system. We have seen evidence from looking at the gravitational perturbations of very distant objects that there's something else out there far beyond Neptune, but that something far beyond Neptune is going to stay far beyond Neptune, and it's going to have no effect on the Earth whatsoever, no matter how big it is. All right. I mean, even if it exists, and uh, as you say, there's good, what we would call dynamical evidence that it does exist, it's going to stay more or less out there. It's not going to come into our backyard. Yeah. So people always ask me, is, is Planet Nine, you know, when it comes the closest to the Earth that it ever comes, is it going to destroy the Earth? Is it going to knock us out of our orbit or something? And I remind them that the closest that Planet Nine would ever come to the Earth is something like 200 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, which means it's something like 40 times further away than Jupiter. And it's also about 10 times less massive than Jupiter. So this thing that's 40 times further away than Jupiter and 10 times less massive than Jupiter, is it going to affect us? 
No. Um, if you're scared of Planet Nine, you should be terrified of Jupiter because it's around all the time. <laughs> well, I can't say that I lie awake at night worrying about what Jupiter is <laughs> going to do to me, but nonetheless. All right. So the evidence for Planet Nine, if I can call it Planet Nine, it sounds like a cheesy sci-fi film I saw quite a long time ago. Uh the evidence for that is good. It's based on the motion of some objects in the outer solar system. But uh, are big telescopes uh, being swung around the heavens trying to find the thing? They are. Some of the biggest telescopes that we have here uh, on the Earth are spending a lot of time looking in the area where we think it is. You know, you would think that something this big would be pretty easy to find, but it's so far away that it's so faint that it's going to take these biggest telescopes and a long time of scanning these these distant regions of the sky. But I, I think... I think we're onto it. I think we know the right places to look, and uh, I think that we have a very good shot at uh, tracking it down here in the next couple of years. Well, well, two things about that. First off, you say you have a good idea of where to look. Obviously, if you don't know where to look, the sky's big. I've read somewhere that there are like 400 square degrees of sky as the hunting ground for Planet Nine. Now, I don't know what that, that's roughly 10 times the size of a large constellation like the Big Dipper or something like that. So that's not exactly knowing where to look, is it? I mean, can't we pinpoint its location better than that? We're trying very hard to narrow down the search range as much as possible because that just makes everything go faster if we know where to look. And uh, we, we started out not knowing anywhere where in the sky it was. We could, we could see its effects, but we didn't yet know where to look in the sky. And then we narrowed it down to a, a pretty wide band in the sky. And we're slowly shrinking that band down to where uh, we are down to this something like 400 square degrees. It sounds like a big chunk of the sky, but it's actually 400 square degrees is a reasonable amount of sky to search in a couple of year period. So I'm really optimistic and thrilled that we've gotten it down that small. It means that we can find it in a couple of years instead of a couple of decades. Well, what about the brightness? I mean, I reckon this object is supposedly 25th magnitude, 25th. And in astronomy, the bigger the number, the dimmer the object. So I figure it's like 10,000 times dimmer than Pluto. Is that something you can see with a big telescope? Yeah, just barely. So the good news is it's only 25th magnitude. It's not fainter than that. If it were fainter than 25th, we would have a really hard time. Even the biggest telescopes that we have here on Earth have a hard time going beyond about 25th. But 25th is actually pretty good. That's that's kind of the limit of our large telescopes around. So it's perfectly suited for what we have available to us today, which is why I'm pretty optimistic that we can track the sky down. Planet Nine would be uh, something between the size of Earth and Neptune, as you say. And, you know, for people who study planets around other stars, that's a what's called a super-Earth what does it mean to be a super Earth? Does it mean you just have superpowers? What is that? <laughs> so um, the nice thing is, the fun thing about Planet Nine is that we don't know what that means. We we don't have any planets that we've seen in our solar system between the Earth and Neptune, and yet around other stars in the galaxy, many, many, many planets are in that mass range, and we don't really understand them. So this would be a, an excellent opportunity to uh, have one up close and in person and really get to study it and really understand what these other ones in the universe are like. This is one of the things, you know, finding it is going to be just fun exploration and discovery, but the science that will come from having this new object in the solar system uh, will really inform a lot of what we think about planets everywhere. So this isn't just a, a question of stamp collecting, as it were, and getting yet another planet. This is a planet that's representative of a very large class of planets, but that we haven't seen up close and personal before. 
That's exactly right. And that's, I think, one of the reasons to be even more excited about it than you might be. All right. Well, a year ago, you and Konstantin Batygin suggested that we would likely find Planet Nine by the end of this winter. In other words, by spring of 2018, we can decide whether the solar system now has nine planets or not. Do you still stand by that prediction? When I made that prediction, I would, would always make it with the caveat that we are using telescopes here on Earth to try to find this planet. Telescopes on Earth are affected by the weather. And so I would always say, you know, modulo, having good weather in Hawaii when we're out there. Last year wasn't so good, so we kind of lost a year looking for it last year. This year so far has been great, so uh, we're going really well. Will we find it by next spring? I That's... That's my optimistic guess and maybe over-optimistic guess. It wouldn't surprise me if we find it by then, but the way the weather's been going, it may take another, an extra couple of times out of the telescope before we really track it down. And uh, have you got a bottle of champagne somewhere uh, awaiting the detection? Uh, we, we have it uh, chilled and ready to go. <laughs> well, finally, Mike, in summary, it seems that just because astronomers are looking for a ninth planet and have the evidence that it exists... This does nothing to validate the Nibiru theory, and maybe I shouldn't be worried about the end of the world. You know, I, I think that there are many reasons to worry about the end of the world, um, but Nibiru is probably not on your top 1,000 list. So what's the number one worry bead on your string of beads there? So I have to tell you, I don't worry about anything coming out of the sky from planets hitting us to stars exploding to gamma ray bursts next door. I, I, the, the thing I worry about is really just what people are doing to themselves. And if the world ends, that's, that's my top guess on how it happens. Mike Brown, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Mike Brown is an astronomer at the California Institute of Technology. So what we've heard in the show is that Nibiru, that's a big story if true, but there's no evidence that it's true. What gives it legs? It's a planet with legs. Well, yes, it helps it get around. What the, and it has gotten around this story. I think that the reason is that there is some element of truth to tie this story to. If nobody had ever found new planets in the outer solar system, you know, then you'd say, ah, this doesn't make any sense. But the facts that we routinely do find such bodies, and then somebody comes in and says, and by the way, one of them is going to ruin your whole day by destroying the Earth. Hey, you know, now you have a reason to believe it. And I think that's true of a lot of these kind of rumor stories. So that means astronomer Mike Brown is part of the problem. Well, I... I <laughs> <laughs> I sort of hesitate to say that. He's doing science, and if people are going to, you know, corrupt it for their own uh, purposes, whatever those purposes may be in predicting doomsday, I don't think we could really blame Mike Brown. Nibiru is a dramatic example of an unsubstantiated story, and it can be scientific, it can be political, and maybe the bottom line here is uh, don't trust, do verify before you hit share. Don't trust, but verify. Well, thanks to the team whose contributions to the show are not fable, 
Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, and intern Sarah Derwin. Also, the vocal talents of Emma Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the behavior of the long-lived sand dunes on Mars. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check. This episode, Nibiru, again. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, again, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you figure that if Earth gets smacked by another planet, your internet service will be interrupted, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. And if you listen to our show via iTunes, well, we invite you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some faint praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. How about an alternative alternative date of June 17th, 2018? No can do. I'm planning a wedding that day. Promises to be a real disaster. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.